Good morning, Woodland Hills. Pod creation and congregation. I'm just kind of getting dressed here, if you don't mind. Just give me a moment. I'll get it all together. It, it has been just the most beautiful fall I can ever remember. I, I've never gotten in the fall. Give Minnesota a hand. It's been... Did you know we've got all these regional parks here in the city? Uh, I, I didn't know this. I... I, I but I've been taking my dog out for walks quite a bit, just enjoying nature. So I've been looking up regional parks, and they're all over the place, some beautiful parks. Take advantage of them. This is gorgeous. That comes out of nowhere. I won't charge you any extra for that at all. I want to give a shout-out to Megan Good, who was so good. Wasn't, she, wasn't that great last week? Oh, that, that. I, I, I love that lady. Her, her, she's so unassuming. She's just so authentic. She's humble, and she's brilliant. And I thought that message was so, so powerful. Uh, the question that we should be asking is not, what would Jesus do? You know, you still have those bracelets, what would Jesus do? But at, after uh, her message last week, it, the, the acronym shouldn't be WWJD, it should be HDJP. How did Jesus practice? Because uh, unless you practice what Jesus practiced, you'll never be able to do what Jesus did. Amen? Uh, excellent message. To be a disciple means we're being disciplined. Uh, and discipline involves the spiritual pr- practices where we're forming our character in the direction of Christ-likeness. So thank you, Megan, for that outstanding message. Uh, we'd ask folks to send in testimonies, and, and uh, uh, there's one that uh, I've been asked to read for you. Uh, this is from Lila, and uh, she mentions how our, in our Sermon on the Mount thing that we were going through when we got to that part about loving enemies in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you, uh, a coin dropped in the slot for her. And she had a complete paradigm shift, she says. And then she, she posted this on Instagram. She said, people I disagree with are not my enemies. People on the opposite side of the political spectrum from me are not my enemies. People who hurt me are not my enemies. We all have a common enemy, and that's the devil. I can love, agape love, all people because we are all fallen and deceived, but we are all image bearers of God. Let's put down the political sticks. Stop beating each other up. Uh, over the head with reasons why we must be right and unify over all the matters in the, all that matters in the long run, spreading the good news that God can redeem anyone. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lila, for that great word. Good testimony. Appreciate that. So uh, today I'm supposed to speak on the spiritual practice of giving alms, which is simply giving away, uh, whether it's to church or to a cause or to someone in need. Uh, it's, it's, it's being generous with your, your, your finances. Um, and the passage that we're, we're, we're working from is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which reads like this. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the, in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. They're doing it to get the praise. Well, when they get the praise, they got the reward. End of story. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand even know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All right. I will get to talking about the giving of alms, but I will tell you that I have been, since two weeks ago when I gave that message, I'm having something of a paradigm shift, or at least a paradigm clarification. And I become more acutely aware, I think, than I have ever been before, and I've developed kind of a passion about this in my heart, that, that the main thing we're up against when we talk about uh, character development and spiritual practices is, as I mentioned two weeks ago, that 
we tend to live in a story in which that doesn't motivate those things. Uh, and I, 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 until we are in a story where it makes sense to vigorously strive for your character development, until we're living in a story where that makes sense and provides a why for that, there's just not much use talking about specific spiritual disciplines because we're not going to be motivated to do it. They will be a, an, an ought without any motivation or a, a, a rule without any fuel, as I said two weeks ago. So I want to first talk about this, getting that story straight, and then that will segue into the giving of alms. It's all really about the giving of alms, but it could apply it to any kind of spiritual practice because we're talking about this story here. So Jesus talks about our reward. He says, be careful that when you're engaging in spiritual practices such as giving of alms, that you're doing it for the right reason. Don't do it to get praise from others. Because if you're doing it to get praise from others, if that's your motivation, well then, when, once you get the praise from others, you've got your reward. Nothing more will happen with that. But if you're very intentional about keeping it secret, not even letting your right hand know what your left hand's doing, keeping it out of public eye, to keep your motives pure. And in the kingdom, the pure motives is always about love. Well, then you receive a reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus talks like this quite a bit. But see, I think many Christians live in a story where talking about rewards and vigorously pursuing them just does not make sense. My impression is that most Western Christians live in a kind of worldview where one of two things is true. Either you're saved or you're not saved. And if you're saved, it's saved by grace. You don't work for that. And if you're not saved, well, then it doesn't matter how much you work for it. It doesn't, it, it doesn't get you anywhere. So it's, it's an all or nothing. Either saved, you go to heaven, and we're all going to be perfected, and it's going to be glorious, or it's a very simple story. But where does striving for character development fit into that story? Where you really see that there's something at stake in, in developing your character development. We don't have any spot for anything in our narrative that tends to motivate us to pursue these rewards. On top of that, I, I used to have a, a, a real hang-up with this talk of rewards, which you find all over the place in the New Testament. But it, it seemed to me that it reduces God to sort of a Santa Claus image. If you do good deeds, then you'll get these rewards by your you know, Santa Claus deity when you die. Gregory was a good boy, so here's your present for Christmas. And, and it seemed to cheapen the view of God. Um, some people argue that, that uh, some critics of Christianity, in fact, argue that talking about rewards cheapens ethics. Because if you're doing something that is good, you ought to be doing it just because it's good to do. Not because you're going to get something out of it. So imagine that you have a, an atheist and a Christian who volunteer once a week at a senior citizen home uh, just to be, provide company for the folks, bingo or whatever. And the atheist is doing it just because she loves people and she likes to provide company to people who would be lonely. The Christian also likes to provide comfort when people are lonely, but in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to get paid for this. Who is more virtuous in this scenario? And I mean, obviously the atheist is. So if, if talking about rewards simply increases your own self-interest, what's Jesus doing talking about rewards? They would argue it cheapens his ethics. And then there's the whole thing about how does this fit in with grace? How does this rewards thing fit in with the whole, whole thing about grace? Paul says this in Romans 4. And by the way, um, you're going to be getting quite a bit of scripture here this morning. This is kind of intense. Uh, it's kind of a thing you might want to take notes on uh, or go back and review because there's a lot of important passages we'll be looking at. It's all packed right in here. So here's what Paul says in Romans 4. He says, For what does Scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something that's due, owed to you. But to the one who without works trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So Paul is real explicit here. Either you do something to get a reward, in which case it's works and, 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 and it's not by grace. Or you trust in the one who justifies the ungodly and he reckons that faith is righteousness, in which case there's no works. So if you're, if, if, if you're trusting in righteousness by, by, by faith through grace, what striving is there to do? And if you're striving, what is there to be given you by grace? It seems like Paul makes it an either or nothing. All these questions simply indicate that that talking about rewards fits awkwardly into the story that most Christians live. We've got to complexify things a little bit to make sense out of why we're told to pursue this character development so, 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 uh, uh, so, so vigorously. Uh, without that story, you still have people who will encourage you to you know, live a godly life and be involved in, you, know, you ought to have some disciplines, you should be doing this, but it'll be a should without a motivation, a, a rule without any fuel. That's why, my experience at least, most churches in the West pretty much ignore this talk about rewards and losses. Um, it just doesn't fit anywhere. They, 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 they stay in this, this, this paradigm where there's heaven and there's hell and there's nothing more to be said about it. And because we ignore this talk about uh, rewards and losses, there's not much place in the narrative that most Christians live in for vigorously striving for character development. And because there's no place in the narrative that motivates vigorously striving to be like Christ, most Western Christians don't strive to be like Christ. They're just not motivated to do it. Uh, and there's all sorts of polls that show that, 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 that the basic character and ethics and values of most professing Christians in America, at least, uh, it, it doesn't translate to any concrete difference in their character or in their ethics or, or anything of the sort. Now, this is a serious problem, folks, because the truth is that the, this rewards language and also this loss language permeates the New Testament. Uh, if you want a, a good book that brings together all this material, and it's pretty impressive once you bring it all together, a friend of mine, Roger Forrester, he's, a, uh, he's the uh, head of ICTHIS ministry in, in, in London. If you are over there in the UK, you might want to check out ICTHIS. It's a great house church ministry. There we go. we got some ICTHIS fans in here. Um, but he wrote this book, uh, uh, Gold, Precious Stones, and Silver, I think it's what it's called. And it's all about the doctrine of rewards and losses in the New Testament. You might, might want to check that out, because this is an, an under appreciated dimension of the New Testament. I gave a sampling of some of this last week. Uh, Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9 and in Philippians 3, he, he likens the Christian life to an athlete who's training for a, the Olympics, uh, training to get first prize, wants to run this race, and so he buffets his body. He's very disciplined, continually, and that's what the kingdom life should be like. There's a prize to win, and, and there's a matter of urgency in going after it. Uh, Paul, when he talks about his concern for his audiences that he's writing to, it's always, he says, I, I, I need to present you fully mature. I labor to present you fully mature in Christ on that day. His concern is how mature are his disciples. He's not concerned with how many he has, but those he has, he's concerned that, that he takes responsibility. He says, it's on me that, that to present you fully mature on that day. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this language permeates the teaching of Jesus. In fact, reward language and also some threat of loss is the main thing that Jesus motivates with. And we've already seen it in the Sermon on the Mount where he's, you know, in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are, et cetera, et cetera, for you shall receive. 
He's always pointing our, our, our vision towards the future. You shall receive. Do this now. Sacrifice now because it pays off in the end. It's a central thing that permeates his teaching. Uh, Luke 14, he says, No one has sacrificed anything in this life for the kingdom who will not receive it back a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. So he motivates with this reward talk. And while there's no place in the truncated gospel story that most Americans believe, I believe in, there's no real place for it that motivates striving for character development. I, I submit to you that this rewards and loss language is so prominent in the New Testament precisely because while the character development doesn't make much sense in the Western paradigm, it makes total sense in the paradigm that the New Testament works with. The salvation story that we're, that we're given in the New Testament, once we are, include this talk of rewards and losses, is one that is focused on character development. It's the main point. It's the main thing that's supposed to be going on now. Developing our characters into Christ-likeness. We're to be preparing ourselves for this coming age when Jesus returns and now establishes his kingdom in fullness. Our job is to be getting ready for that, to be compatible with that. One way to really see this clearly is, is, is by looking at the, the metaphor you find throughout the New Testament on, on uh, the Christ's relationship to the church where Christ is the groom and the church is the bride of Christ. And to see this, how important this is, remember that in first century Jewish culture, marriages took place in two stages. There was a betrothal period, which wasn't like our engagement period. It was more, much more serious than that. People were married, legally married. They pledged themselves to each other. You could only get out of this by divorcing each other. So there's a betrothal period. But then the groom would go away for a year or two, usually, and prepare a place for the family to live and, and establish an income if he didn't have one yet and all that. He, he prepares for the family to, be, to have a place to stay and be taken care of. The bride's job during this betrothal period is to make herself ready. And here's where she gets educated about what it is to be a wife, and, and the other ladies in the community will be teaching her about uh, the duties of a wife and the character that a wife needs to have. And, and this is the period where she then uh, works on uh, creating her own wedding dress, uh, making it beautiful that, for that wedding day. And then when it's time's ready, the groom returns, and they have the wedding, and then they have a wedding feast. It's a beautiful thing. Well, that's how the New Testament understands what's going on right now. Jesus came. Uh, you know, throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is the groom and Israel is the, 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 the betrothed bride. But when Jesus comes, he presents himself as the groom, which shows you that Jesus saw himself as the embodiment of Yahweh. And he's a groom come in search of his bride. And the cross ultimately is, 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 is his proposal to us. Here, Jesus says, here's who I am. Here's my character. Here's my love for you. Will you accept this? Will you say yes to this? And when we say yes and commit our life to him, pledge our life to him, then we are the betrothed bride. And Jesus says, now I'm going to prepare a place for you, John 14. This is betrothal talk. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Uh, it's not, he's not preparing a place somewhere else where we're now going to leave earth and go there. Some people think that, but read Revelations 21. The place he's preparing, he brings back to earth. <laughs> And, and the, now we have a new heaven and a new earth. The heavenly city comes down here, and, and it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Our job until that happens is to be getting ourselves ready. We are the bride, and we need to be preparing for this, looking ahead to this, and, 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 and developing the kind of character that's compatible with our heavenly groom. The goal of the whole thing is given to us in Revelation where, where, where it says this. Um, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. 
Next slide. Marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So here's the, the consummation of all this. The, 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 the wedding festival is here. And the bride has made herself ready. And she has adorned herself with this magnificent dress, which John tells us are the righteous deeds of the saints. Or those could just be the, 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 the right-related acts of the saints. Uh, the full beauty of who the bride is is put on display by how she has behaved, by how she's been disciplined, by how she's formed her character into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that's part of what makes this a beautiful scene. It's all about character development in this transitional period that we're in. So how does this talk about rewards and losses fit in with this imagery of, of the bride? Uh, to get at that, and that's asked the question, how do we live in a narrative where we're betrothed by grace and yet we're to be striving for character development? What story makes sense out of this? Uh, I'll turn to another passage of Paul to take it a, a step further. This is in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 to 13, and here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, well, obey me in this one. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's break this down here. Notice that Paul says, work out your salvation. So you have the salvation. You're not, he doesn't say work at your salvation. Work out your salvation. Since you are saved, now, now there's something to work it out. The salvation is all by grace. Uh, you're loved by God's grace. You're forgiven by God's grace. You know, by God's grace, he's put you into Christ Jesus, and you share all the blessings of that. By God's grace, he's given you every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. By God's grace, it's all there. And yet there's something to work out. There's something that, that we have to do. Ask this question. If, 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 if we're made holy and blameless and spotless in Christ Jesus by grace... Why don't we experience that consistently now? I know that I'm a holy, blameless child of God, filled with his spirit, seated far above all principalities and powers, but I don't always think of myself that way. I don't always feel like that, and I don't always act like that. And I know I'm not alone in saying that. So what's wrong with this picture? Okay, so to, to answer this, and this will not be new to some of you, but I am going to give you some of my incredible art scales. So here's, think of it like this. So here's... Think of this. Here's this age. We'll call this the old age. This is, or this is the age of the flesh. This is the, the world without Christ. This is the world oppressed by the enemy and broken and all that. Jesus comes, and with his life, death, and resurrection, he inaugurates a new age. This is the age of the kingdom. But notice, there's an overlap, a transition period. And, and, and it's because God doesn't reduce anyone to automatons. He treats us always as persons. So the cross changes everything for everyone. It, it brings about a new creation. brings about a new identity, all of that. And yet, there's a process of moving into that. And we have a lot to do with that process. We work out our salvation. You're saved, you're in the kingdom, but you've got to work it out. And the job here, this is, this, this is the betrothal period, the transition period, where we are moving from the old into the new. And that's... That's, that's, that's the job of the, the bride of Christ. It's part of getting ourselves ready. Uh, we transition. And so the new brings about a whole new character. The new, when it's fully manifested, will be 100% defined by the love of God, the grace of God, the, the joy and the peace of God. And so our job is to make ourselves consistent with that now. 
And that's how we transition our life from the old to the new, and that's how the whole creation is being transitioned from the old into the new. Uh, we work out this salvation. So by grace, you are betrothed to Christ. But this is the period now where you are to be preparing yourself, adorning yourself, learning how to think like a bride, act like a bride, feel like a bride, behave like a bride, develop the kind of character that the bride of Christ should have. We're saved by grace, but this is the period, this transition period is the period where we have to work that out. And we work it out by integrating it into our thoughts and into our feelings, uh, making it the, the story that we live in, being intentional about that, engaging in spiritual disciplines. We work out this beautiful salvation that God has given to us. My favorite part of, of Megan's sermon, and it's hard to pick out a favorite part because I loved all of it, but I loved her analogy of the kink in the hose. Did you get that? If you weren't here last week, make sure you check it out. But she, she notes how when you turn on a, a spigot, your backyard hose or whatever, if there's a kink, the water can't come out easily. It just kind of dribbles, maybe. I giggled when she used that analogy because I'm sure I'm not the only kid who did this, but we used to do this prank. Uh, it had a lot of different varieties, but one variety was the, the, the mouse in the hose routine where yeah, so you, you turn your spigot in the backyard and, and, and then you have a friend who's out more in the front yard and there's a hose he's got and you're kinking the hose and, and then he gets one of your buddies to come over and says, hey, there's a, there's a mouse stuck in here. Look at, can you see that mouse? And the person's like looking at it like, and then you un, undo the kink and the person gets baptized. We love to play that gag on folks. Kids, don't do that. That's mean. Don't, don't, don't. But see, it, it's a great analogy because when we enter into a relationship with, with, with Jesus, that is salvation. The salvation isn't the result of the relationship. It is the relationship. John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that people know you through Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. And so we, when we enter that relationship, God gives us himself. He pours himself out to us just like he did on the cross. All that I have is given to you. It's tremendous blessings. The water's just flowing. But it has to flow through this, through this tube, through the, the, what are they called? Yeah, the tube, the hose, the water hose. And that water hose is you. That water hose is your brain. That water hose is your heart. That water hose is, is the you that, has, that you bring into the relationship, that old you. And insofar as you're staying in that old you and thinking like the old you and feeling like the old you and acting like the old you, you have kinks in the hose. And the blessings of God get jammed up. It's not being withheld from God's side. It's being blocked from our side. If the story that we're living in isn't consistent with this, then we're, that's a kink in the hose. Every lie that we believe is a kink in the hose. Every habit we've developed that, that, that doesn't conform to the character of the coming kingdom is a kink in the hose. And it blocks our ability to experience the truth of who we are in, in, in Christ. Brilliant analogy. Um, you know, so, so, so yes, you're committed to Christ, you've surrendered your life to Christ, but there's parts of you that aren't yet submitted, that aren't yet made consistent. Or if, if to go back to the bridal analogy, yes, you're in love with the, the, the groom, you've pledged your life to the groom, but maybe there's parts of you that really isn't yet on board with that. Maybe you're, you're kind of holding back because you don't want to give up your independence. Uh, you know, there's parts of being a wife that you don't like, you'd rather not have. And so there's parts of you that will resist that, and that's going to hinder your ability to be prepared for the, for the marriage to your groom when he returns. You are the bride, but our job is to cooperate with God to get ready for that, to unkink the hose. We've been given this infinite reservoir of blessing that is called salvation out of a relationship with Christ, but our job is to work that out. Now, even our ability to work that out is a matter of grace. Because Paul says, 
Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So God's at work in us. The Holy Spirit's at work in us. And we couldn't do this without the Holy Spirit working in us. It's God's grace. But having said that, while we can't do it without the Holy Spirit, it's also true that the Holy Spirit will not do it without us. Because God will not reduce us to being automatons. We have to cooperate with this. And our role is important and serious, and apparently something's important at stake, because Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation like an athlete in training. It's intense. It's serious. Work it out. So here's the thing. While your marriage status isn't threatened, so long as you're married to Jesus, so long as you're the core of who you are is committed to Jesus, that's not on the line. You'd have to, get, you'd have to divorce God for, to, to bring an end to that. But while the marriage status isn't threatened, there are things that there are to be gained and things that are to be lost. There's things that, are, that hang in the balance on whether or not we are intentional at unkinking that hose, whether we're intentional at getting our mind and our life and our, our behavior to line up with the character of God and the character of the kingdom that he's bringing. It's a matter of urgency. When Paul says, I, I labor to present you fully mature in Christ, I hear in him a sense of, like, this is out of love for you, out of his audience, because he wants them to be fully mature and receive the fullness of reward that they should get. But he also talks like something's at stake for him. He has a responsibility here. And so he's like, I'm laboring because I have to present you fully mature in Christ. And see, I think part of the reason why I'm passionate about this is that I think that responsibility applies to all teachers uh, and all pastors. Um, I, my job is to present you fully mature uh, in Christ insofar as I have any influence on your life to, to make sure that it's grooming you for that day uh, where you be fully mature. And part of my reward hangs in the balance on this. So I need you guys to be fully mature for me to get my reward, right? It's about me. For my sake, will you all grow up? <laughs> to understand this a little bit, like how this might work, uh, Paul gives us this image in 1 Corinthians 3. Now listen to this passage. Here's a part of the story of, of the gospel that we just don't hear that much about. Paul says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. The foundation is the relationship, that saving relationship. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it. The day, for Paul, whenever he refers to that, the day, it's the judgment day. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment day. It will disclose the quality of the work, because it will be revealed with fire. The quality of everyone's work will be revealed by with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. That is his reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. That phrase, only as through fire, it means, yeah, you get out of the house, the burning house, but uh, uh, you don't have anything to show for it. Uh, you run out naked. Have nothing else going on. Now, here's the thing. Note that there's a foundation. That's all by God's grace. You don't earn that. You can't work at that. Uh, that's given to you. It's wonderful. But now there's a question of what do you build with this? What do you do with this? Yeah, you're saved. That's great. But uh, how much are you going to let it in on your life? How much are you going to give yourself to this? Uh, how much are you going to let it define your character? What are you going to build on this? And, 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 uh, It'll be tried by fire. Now, this reframes the, how we think about rewards. You know, I, I've often taught here that, that there's two kinds of punishment. 
Uh, there's a, a, an imposed or judicial punishment, and then there's an organic uh, or intrinsic punishment. The external or the, the, uh, yeah, the external punishment or the judicial punishment is where something's just imposed on you. If you're going over the speed limit, 75 miles an hour in a 55 or whatever, you get a fine. But there's no relationship between the fine and going too fast. But if you're going too fast on the road and, and that causes you to be reckless and you get in a car crash and get injured, well, that injury is related to you going too fast. And, and that's an organic kind of punishment. It's the consequences of your behavior brought about this. And all laws are just kind of stand-ins for, to help us. The world operates by organic consequences, and laws are simply human ways of trying to regulate that. In the Bible, the main way that judgment comes about is not by God imposing anything on people, but people suffer the consequences of their decision. It works the same way with rewards. There are extrinsic rewards and internal rewards. Extrinsic rewards are like Santa Claus brings. If you're a good boy, then you get a lollipop or a present or what have you. But there's no relationship between the lollipop and the present on the one hand and your good behavior on the other. It's just imposed. But if you're an athlete in training, for example, and this is the analogy that Paul uses, um, then, then when you win a race, you get that reward, it's because of the training that you went through. What is going on with my microphone right now? I feel like I'm in a fishbowl. Houston, come in, we're having a problem. This is ground control to major tongue. One, two, three. Yeah, I'm about to bring you that one. I, I feel like Robo Preacher. I am Robo Preacher. All right, so here we go. Pause. One, two. Woo! I'm back. I'm back. Okay, so I was talking about external, internal training. Okay, so if an athlete who trains to win the race, when they win the race, it's because they train a certain way. There's an organic relationship between their training on the one hand and their winning on the other. Or maybe even better analogy is this. If there's a couple who's very intentional at working through the kinks in their marriage and the problems and, and compatibility issues and things like that. But they, they don't bail on it. They hang in there and they pursue one another and they work at understanding one another. The reward for that can be that they'll discover a depth of love they otherwise would not have ever discovered. The reward for working through issues in the marriage and, and, and keeping it on the front burner is that you get to enjoy a capacity to love one another and a capacity to understand each other that you otherwise wouldn't have. See, I think... The reward for striving for character development, for striving for Christ-likeness, for engaging in the spiritual practices, is it deepens our capacity to understand and to participate in and to reflect the truth of this new order, this new coming kingdom, to participate in the, in the love and the joy and the peace that God has given us in, uh, uh, in Jesus Christ. Um, the reward is that the hose gets unkinked and you get to drink freely from it. Paul addresses this, my final passage here, in, in Romans 12. Listen to this, uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Okay, we worship God to the degree that we are living sacrificially. We're offering up our lives as a sacrifice. Note there that it's never fun to be a sacrifice. That always involves some bleeding, some pain, some delayed gratification. But this is what it is to worship God, to say, God, you are worth this. And this is what's required to transition from the old into the new. You have to sacrifice that old to begin to experience the new. But then Paul says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Literally, it's to the pattern of this world, the thinking of this world, the system of this world. Don't be conformed to that, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern, dokumazo, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, this word dokumazo, it, it, it uh, can mean to discern for yourself. You no longer just told something, but now you see it yourself. Uh, it, you experience it for yourself. Some translations have, you prove it for yourself. What is the good and pleasing and acceptable will of God? And to the degree that we're conformed to the pattern of this world, the pattern of the old, the self-centeredness of the old, the me first of the old, to the degree that we're conformed to the thinking of this world um, and to the behaving of this world, we have kinks in the hose. It blocks our ability to, to understand, appreciate, and experience for ourselves the truth of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It blocks that. But to the degree that we align our mind, and it always starts with our mind. That's why I'm addressing our mind right now. To the degree that we address, align our mind with the truth of who God is and the truth of who we are and the truth that all that has been revealed in Jesus Christ, to that degree that holds us unkinked and we begin to experience for ourselves what is that good and pleasing uh, will of God. When the kingdom comes, as I read in the New Testament, we'll have different capacities of doing that. The bride, our job right now is to be deepening this capacity, our character, our capacity to find joy in giving, to, to, find, to love automatically even our enemies. Um, here's an analogy that might work about how you might envision this in heaven. In heaven, I think we'll all be full of God's love and we'll feel full. We'll all be full. Uh, and you can think of this as like, we're, we'll all be mirrors that reflect the glory of God. As he shines, we receive that light and we radiate that light. And in that way, the lights kind of increase. That's where the God's goal for the whole creation is to expand his love, to have more people invited in on this love, to reflect this love in more in various ways. So that's kind of heaven. We all are full, but people will have different size mirrors. Our capacity to understand and appreciate, participate in and reflect this love, this grace, who is God himself, will depend on what we, the bride, have done to make ourselves ready. Some people have a greater capacity and some have less capacity, as is even true right now. People vary in terms of their capacity. We all use the same word, love, but we can mean very different things by it based on your experiences and what you've done and what your capacity is to understand it and, 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 and to, to sacrifice for it. That'll be true in heaven. Now, does this mean that if you were sort of the, 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 the lard bride and you didn't do much with it, you didn't build much on the foundation, or maybe you built on the foundation, but you did it with, 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 uh, you know, with ulterior motives, um, well, then, then, then uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to be locked for all eternity on being a small mirror. And, and I, I don't think, the New Testament doesn't answer that question, but it seems to me that Love, as long as there's a possibility of growing, love is always moving in that direction. And so as long as it's possible for us to grow, I think we'll be being, the Spirit will be moving us in that direction of growth. Gregory of Nyssa has this beautiful, he's a fourth century theologian that I just love. He has this beautiful conception of, of, of heaven as, as eternal growth. 
Um, we are, he likens us to mirrors who reflect the glory of God. But since the glory of God is infinite and the love of God is infinite, and we are finite, it will take an eternity for us to ever get big enough to reflect all of God, which means we'll never do it. It will be eternal growth in, our, in deepening our capacity. I'd like that image. I think it's, it's wonderful. But at the same time, we've got to take very seriously the New Testament's emphasis that there's a matter of urgency in doing it now. Uh, it's important to do it now. This, the sense I get is that it's much better to do it now than later. It's easier now than later. The longer you resist, you know, that, that fire that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3 is, I think, just the fire of God's perfect undiluted love. And in fact, as, as I see it, what's going on is only what is compatible with this new gets in. Nothing unclean enters the kingdom, it says in Revelation. And so, so th this is the refining process whereby everything that can be salvaged is salvaged and purified. Uh, uh, silver, gold, precious stones, those things get purified by the fire of God's love. And the judgment day, we just come into the fire of God's love. And, and everything that can be purified gets purified, but everything that is not compatible with the character of God gets burned up. If you did it for a reward here and now, well, then there's no reward later on. It just gets burned up. Because it's not compatible with, with this kingdom of, of, of love. And the sense I have is that this is the period where we're, 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 where we're to be in preparation. The judgment day will complete the process, and that's where we receive rewards and losses. But it's harder there. Uh, and and uh, Jesus says, make, make, make peace with your brother while you're on the way, lest you get thrown into prison, and you won't get out till you pay the last penny. Do it now! Because this is the period where it's supposed to be done. So we're to be refining our characters as a central part of our walk with God. We're to be practicing spiritual disciplines as a central part of our walk with God, and things hang in the balance on that. And that story, I submit to you, should motivate us. If we live in that story, the bride getting herself ready, it motivates us to vigorously pursue this character development and spiritual disciplines. And that's the story I think we, we need to, to lock in in our brains. Okay, so let me just, in the last few minutes that we have here, apply it to alms. Mary, I got to our topic. <laughs> Hallelujah! She was wondering. Would you get to the topic, please? And I, I'm just going to say something short here because it's, it's I think, kind of obvious. Alms is simply the spiritual practice of sacrificial giving. We always say that since the kingdom is inaugurated by the cross, confirmed by the resurrection, but it always has a cruciform, a cross-like quality to it. So the kingdom always begins with our first drop of blood. It's all about sacrifice, offering up our bodies as living sacrifices. When we do that financially, it's just called almsgiving. It's practicing generosity. You're expressing love through giving away money or giving away things towards others. Now see, if you're doing that to be recognized, oh, holy, look, look at me, I'm going to give up all this for the poor or whatever, well, then you have your reward. And on that judgment day, it's going to be revealed why you really did that, and it'll be burned up. But if you do it in secret, we'll see, and you do it without any ulterior motive, you're guarding against having ulterior motive, we'll see, now you'll have a reward. Not like Santa Claus giving you a lollipop because you gave $10 to a stranger, but rather, giving $10 to that stranger because the Holy Spirit led you to, that moves you in the direction of Christ-likeness. Everything we do, every thought we think, every behavior we, we, we engage in, every decision we make, moves us down the river a little bit in a certain direction. We have a, moment, a momentum, a flow in our life. We start by making choices. Our choices become habits. Our habits become our character, and our character becomes our destiny. So we've got to be careful about what choices are we making here? What, what, what are our true motives in giving? Paul says in, in, second, in Corinthians 9, he says, when, when you give, don't give out of compulsion or don't give reluctantly because God loves a cheerful giver. 
God loves a cheerful giver. So that's why we here at Willow Hills Church, we don't think that, that 10%, it's called the tithe, and in the Old Testament it was 10%, and some churches teach that every Christian is obliged to give 10% to the church uh, as they did in the Old Testament. But our, 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 the way we read the scripture, what God wants is a cheerful giver. The, the, the tithe was simply a, a part of the Israeli taxation. It was the temple tax. And since we don't have a temple, we don't tax people for the temple, all right? Uh, but the m- m- main principle of giving that we find in the New Testament is that God loves a cheerful giver. It's not to be done reluctantly because God wants a, a, a giver who's giving for the right reasons, for the right motives. And this is really the goal, folks, in some ways of a goal of everything, is to learn how to become a cheerful giver. Because here's the truth. God is a cheerful giver. His very being is love, other-oriented love. As Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he, there, there's a pouring out love within God's own being. And then that is revealed to us on Calvary when God pours himself out towards us. God is outpouring love, and he finds joy in that. God loves being God. He's, there's joy in that. And even when Jesus dies on the cross, it, it says in Hebrews 12 that for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. God is a cheerful giver. So the kingdom that, he, that he's going to reign over and the kingdom that's coming will be a kingdom of joyful givers. To the degree that you've cultivated the character of a joyful giver, you'll be very compatible with that kingdom, and you'll enjoy it to the full, and, and, and your capacity will be great. But to the degree that you've been a miser and cling to stuff, and, well, you're not compatible with that kingdom, and that part's got to get purified. So now is the time to practice giving. And the more, the more you practice giving, the more you find the joy in giving. There really is. It's the greatest joy in the world when you can give away and, 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 and bless other people. And then the more joy you discover, well, the more, the more motivated you are to give. And the more you give, the more joy yours. And now you have a momentum. You're being carried down the right stream in the right direction because you're going in the direction of the joyful giving kingdom. Because in the end, that's all that's going to be. In the end, the only thing that's going to be is God's love in all of its dimensions. It's generosity. It's other-orientedness self-sacrificial nature, and only what's compatible with that will enter into that kingdom. So, Dokumazo, we got to experience for ourselves this generosity, and we'll experience for ourselves, Dokumazo, we'll experience and discern for ourselves uh, the joy of giving to the degree that we are, are, are yielding to that, cooperating with that. Just like we'll enjoy our marriage to Christ only to the degree that we have cultivated a character that is compatible with, with Christ by becoming a joyful giver. So, bride, we are an expression of the bride of Christ. The question I want to leave us with is this. Are we making ourselves ready? Are we taking that seriously? Uh, can, we, can we help one another make, make you get ready for this? And that's what spiritual friendships are all about. Friends who are helping one another get ready for this coming kingdom. It's coming. We don't know when, but, but it, it's coming. And it will come like a thief in the night. Uh, are we ready for this? Will we practice sacrificial giving to learn to find the joy in it? It means, folks, that we have to do this, to find the joy in giving. We have to shun, I mean shun, the American story of me first, the American story of self-centeredness, the American story of consumerism, the American story of individualism. There's so much part of our American story that is just counter the gospel. Um, and, 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 and to put that aside, the, the, the story of, that, that, we're, that we inherit from this culture and podcasters, wherever you are, you have to apply it to your own culture. But we absorb the story that it's all about me and I, this is all I got. I got to acquire as much as I can now and experience as much of my good life as I can now. And it's Because you don't know what's going to be happening later on. Yeah, maybe. But, but right, what I'm certain of is that this is, I got one shot. I got to grab it all right now. Jesus teaches the opposite of that throughout all of his teachings. Be thinking ahead. 
Be thinking ahead. Luke 16, make friends, you know, ahead of time so that when this thing comes to an end, you have a place to go. Uh, be thinking about the future, preparing yourself for this coming kingdom, preparing yourself for this coming bride. And see, it's as we sacrifice together, as we, it always has a cross shape to it, as we bleed together, this is not just an individual, I got to get ready thing, it's a we got to get ready thing. And as we sacrifice together, this is what advances the kingdom in our life and through us to the lives of others. The kingdom runs on sacrifice, loving, joyful sacrifice, loving, joyful servanthood. That's what the cross is all about, and that's what we're called to do. And, and as we learn to do this, it's part of our learning how to love together, right? That's our slogan. We learn how to love together. That means we're learning how to find the joy of self, self-sacrificial giving, and we're doing that together. And then we together then make an impact in this world, and that comes back on all of us a hundredfold. Do you see how we need each other? It's not just that I need you to be fully mature for, for me to re- me receive my, my reward, but what we do together is part of our collective reward. So let's just kick butt on this thing. What do you say? <laughs> let's just go for it, all right? And amen. Let's just, so are we making ourselves ready? And I, regarding the finances, I'll just say this. It's so important that we get honest with our finances. The first step is just honesty. Uh, many people just don't know where their money goes. But see, money is a form of say-so, and we've got to know where it goes. And, and the thing is, is that if something's valuable to you, you find a way to budget it in. If, if, if going on vacation is valuable to you, you'll, find, you'll start budgeting it with, for it ahead of time. You need that new car or what have you, you, you work it into the budget. You don't just walk on a car and say, okay, how much money do I have on me? Okay, I'll give you $5 for that car. It doesn't work like that. You've got to budget for it. And so by looking at your finances, the best way to know what your real priorities are are to look where the money goes because your money will always go towards your priorities. And, 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 and so be honest with that and then say, are there priorities that need to be adjusted here? If, if we're to be seeking first the kingdom in our life, then we ought to be seeking first the kingdom in our finances, which means... This ought to be off the top. Don't give God leftovers. Throughout the Bible, you give him your first fruits because he's the highest priority. And so you seek the Holy Spirit and say, what of my finances am I supposed to keep for myself, for my family, and what am I supposed to be giving away? Whether it's to the church or whether it's to someone that you know who's in need or to a cause, the Holy Spirit will guide you on all that. Our job isn't to tell you how to spend money. Your job is to be listening to the Holy Spirit tell you how to spend your money and how to give it away. But are you learning how to be a joyful giver? That's the, the, the thing. Are you moving in that direction? The Spirit will guide you in all else. And if Woodland Hills, is, if being a part of this body, if you consider this your body, hopefully now you understand how we all need each other in this. And, and if, if this is something you stand for and that you agree with and that you want to participate in and you want the reward of Woodland Hills to kind of come back on you, well, then it's something you ought to be giving to. Let's put it that, 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 that bluntly. But you go to God about that, and, and he'll lead uh, uh, from there on. Praise God. The bride is making herself ready. That's what we're called to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, uh, don't forget, on Tuesdays we have our MuseCast uh, with Dan Kent and Shauna Bourne. It's a, they're a great team. And um, then we have our gathering groups. We encourage everyone to be, check out the gathering groups and, and just meet other people. And sometimes we meet folks from all over different parts of the world. So... I encourage you to get on that. If you're going to be here next week in person, if you're going to be part of our congregation and not just the congregation, let us know so that we can have folks available, try to have folks available uh, to uh, be serving in Children's Church. And would you please consider serving in Children's Church because we really could use some help in that area. Uh, and I think that's, oh, and we have prayer available. Uh, if, if you're a congregation, you have it there online. 
encourage you to take advantage of that. And if you're here in the congregation, we'll have prayer teams up at the front and you can come forward and uh, pray with the folks uh, as soon as we're done here. Father, we just thank you, God. You have betrothed us to be your, your lawfully wedded wife. And Lord, uh, our heart's desire is to be the bride who's making herself ready. Holy Spirit, will you just bug us and remind us to do that because it doesn't come naturally given this American story that we've already been polluted with. Help us to depollute our brains from that story and reprogram our brains with the kingdom story that includes the necessity of us to vigorously be pursuing Christ-likeness as the bride who's preparing for her groom to return, as the people who are preparing our lives for the age that is to come and that will be glorious, for which there will be no end. We give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name and the bride of Christ said... Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and live in the world and pursue Christ-likeness.